I'm going to just read a portion of it, an allotment of it, and then we're going to kind of just do an introduction as you would find it in your, um, in your, in your outline. Uh, the title of our study is going to be Spiritual Things, and that's because of the way the verse opens in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, literally spiritual things, gifts is an... Uh, um, it's in the italicis, so it's a kind of inference. It's not literally gifts here, but spiritual things. But as Paul fleshes out the subject matter, gifts will be a part of it. They are not the uh, center here in chapter uh, 12, but they are an essence of it. And we'll talk about that here shortly. Let's read verses 1 through verse 11, and then we'll come back and talk about the importance of our subject. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would that you, uh, I would not have you to be ignorant. There he goes again with ignorance versus knowing. You know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand. That's the other side. He wants you to know. He does not want you to be agnostic here. He wants you to be epistemically sound here as he wanted us to be in chapter 11 as well, that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, I give you to um, verse 4, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are differences of administration, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operation, but it is the same God which works in all worketh all in all but the manifestation of the spirit is given to every man to profit therewith for to one is given by the spirit the word of wisdom to another the word of knowledge by the same spirit to another faith by the same spirit to another uh, the gifts of healing by the same spirit to another uh, the working of miracles to another prophecy to another discerning of spirits to another diverse kinds of tongues and yet to another the interpretation thereof verse 11 but all these worketh that one and the selfsame spirit dividing to every man severally as he wills this is a good break actually to start at because there are three major categories that will allow us to go into the metaphor that Paul wants to get into, and that's in verse 12, part A, for as the body is one. Then it goes on to talk about the relationship of the unity of the body and then the many members. We'll deal with that later. What we're going to be dealing with is the opening verses, which are rich in their theological implications, and then also um, in the introduction to the um, the work of the Godhead around spiritual um, things, around spiritual things. So first and foremost, what you see in verse 1 is really the topic. Now concerning spiritual things, again, I'm going to put the gifts in the italics because it's really about spiritual matters, period. Gifts will come into the equation later. And so what Paul is going to be talking to you and I about really is the nature of God. We can kind of start it here, the nature of God, but particularly in terms of an aspect of God that we call his spirit. Spiritual things proceed from the spirit of God, and this will be made known in verse 3 very clear. 
But when he uses the term spiritual things, look over with me in verse uh, point number one in your outline. He's really going to give a clarification about spiritual things. Now, notice what he does in verse one as he talks about what we call spiritual things. He says, brethren, I would not have you to be what? Ignorant. All right. So as we talk about spiritual things, what he says is be clear on this. And what he's about to do now is explain what we can describe as a before and after condition of every human being, and particularly those who come to know God in the person of Christ. So you can kind of just divide this category up and see it like this. This is a before and after. So before Christ, before Christ, what he said was, this you and I need to know. Verse 2, please. Verse 2. You know that you were what? Gentiles. In the New Testament, that term is gene, and it actually means Gentiles ethne is the Greek term. Ethne means Gentiles, people who are not Jewish. And so he's speaking to that larger constituency of the Corinthians. They are not 100% Jewish, but they are large. I'm not 100% Gentiles, but they are largely Gentiles. There are Jews there too, as you would, as you would, uh, right, right well know. He says, you know that you were Gentiles. And then he uses a very interesting term. And this is going to be Paul as the theologian of the Old Testament. And this is going to be important to capture. This is why we're going to spend some time on it. One, first of all, he says that you and I were Gentiles carried away. Do you guys see that? So I want you to think through the vision that he's going to um, be um, working through. Carried away. There's two things that Paul does. He says, before we came to know God in Christ... You and I had a spiritual condition that we were being carried away, carried away. And then he also said that we were led, led. Now, notice what he says. Before we came to know Christ, you were Gentiles in the flesh. And, and according to Paul's writing in Ephesians 4, to be a Gentile in the flesh is to be someone who just does not know God. So it's easy to capture. That's going to be a simple definition. We'll be filling in those blanks as we go deeper into the gifts. But to be a Gentile in that sense is to be someone who does not know God. Now, <clears throat> it does not mean that to be a Jew means you're someone who knows God because we learned in 1 Corinthians 10, 32. You can pull that up. I just want those references to be there. We know that you can be a Jew and not know God and you can be a Gentile and what? Not know God. Right. And the three categories that the New Testament acknowledges existing in our world is Jew, Gentile, and then the church of God. That's what the text would teach us. Give none offense, neither to the what? Nor to the Gentile, nor to the church of God. So what is the church of God? The church of God are Jews and Gentiles. These are all the ethnic, ethnic groups in the world, right? According to the Bible, Jews and Gentiles, but what makes them the church is that they know Christ. They know Christ in a way in which we're going to be talking about now. So the church is a collective of men and women who have passed from life to death, if, if you will, Jews and Gentiles in the collective of the body of Christ. And that's going to come back up as we get into verse 12 as well, the body of Christ. So. What he says was, before we came to know salvation, in terms of spiritual things, we were carried away and we were what? 
led. Two words that means two things. One, carried away means you were controlled. You were controlled. Led means you followed what you were controlled by. Carried away means to be controlled. Led means you followed that which you were controlled by. This is going to be important because what Paul now is using an Old Testament motif of what it meant when Israel was carried away captive into Babylon. This is a term repeatedly used in the Old Testament. They were carried away into Babylon. It's important for you and I to be able to capture that. I want you to see the language and I want to develop it. Starting in Second uh, Kings, we can look at verse 18, verse 11, uh, chapter 18, verse 11, Second Kings 18, 11, if the language uh, gets us right, right. And the king of Assyria did what? Carry away. Did what? Carry away. That's the term. Is used repeatedly of God giving Israel over to the Gentile nations because they broke his covenant. So I want you to capture that. When you visualize being carried away, what that means is another nation has come into your territory and has enslaved you. So when Paul says, you know that when you were Gentiles, that is people who didn't know God, you were actually enslaved by another power system. You were enslaved by that other power system. And the king of Assyria did carry Israel away unto Assyria. Uh, and then it talks about how that prevailed. Look again in Second Kings chapter 25, verse 11. This is Assyria where they took the 10, uh, 10, uh, 10 northern tribes. They were called Israel proper. The two southern tribes were taken by the Babylonians. Listen to this. Now, the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, do what? He carried them away. So there were two carryings away of Israel when they came under the covenant curse. The first carrying away were of the 10 northern tribes. They were the big group of Israel. We would call them liberals in our day because they abandoned God early on and bought into pluralism and secularism and modernism and carnality at the idolatrous level. The two southern tribes we would call the conservatives who fell into the same debauchery as well. So they were last to be brought into captivity. Um, and that, that would be Judah and uh, Jerusalem, okay? They were brought into captivity of the two southern tribes. That's what both of those uh, texts are indicating. And the idea of being led, being led is the idea of following as a slave following as a slave. Now, what makes this before and the after, which we're about to talk about now, after Christ, before Christ, is that after you come to know Christ, you are also carried away. You are carried away from this dominion to another dominion. All right, and it's important for you to capture that too. In other words, if in fact we were slaves of sin, then we had to have a power greater than us to carry us up out of that dominion and put us into the dominion of Christ. Does that make some sense? Right, so it's important for us to um, capture that concept as well. We might find this in the Exodus account in, uh, in Exodus chapter 14 where uh, 
Israel is about to be carried away. Exodus chapter 14, maybe verse 11, Exodus 14, 11, if I have my reference right. Uh, here it is. And they said unto Moses, because there was no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away, taken us away from where? Egypt. Now, of course, you already already know that they are struggling with what is called the horizontal dilemma. They're blaming Moses for their freedom from Egypt, are they not? But you and I know that God was the one that brought them out of Egypt. Right. By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by miracles over the course of a year, which, again, is going to be a parallel to what we're dealing with in terms of the gifts of the spirit in First Corinthians chapter 12. But notice you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. No, that is not true. Um, and then he they argue, uh, wherefore have you thus dealt with us to carry us forth out of what? Well, that's what God has done for us in Christ. He's carried us up out of sin into Christ. According to Colossians chapter one, we were translated out of darkness into his marvelous light. You guys do know that language. All right. So the point with the carrying away and the leading is the idea that you and I were powerless before Christ to do anything about the bondage of sin that we were in before we knew Christ. And the idea of being carried up out of that system and then now being under a new authority, control and following, because to say that you and I are uh, believers in Christ is to say that you and I are now controlled by him. Would you agree with that? I'm getting ready to nail that down, but I want you to capture it just for the moment. When a person says he's a believer in Christ, he's one for whom now you and I have been led captive by Christ. That's Ephesians chapter four. Okay, start at verse 11. I think we'll be able to make that good. Listen to what it says. Ephesians 4, 11. And he got uh, start back at verse 10. I uh, probably have to run through it. Yeah, he just he that descended is the same also that ascended up high far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Who was the he there? Jesus. Verse 11. <clears throat> and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some teachers and pastors. Verse 12. Right. For the perfecting of the body, I probably went past it. Go back to verse nine because it speaks to captivity there. Verse eight. Sorry. Go back to verse eight. That probably is where it is. There it is. Wherefore, he said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, who ascended on high? Jesus. And what did he do? He sent his spirit. And what does his spirit do? His spirit does now what it did back then, bring men and women up out of captivity of a dominion of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of his dear son. That makes sense, right? All right. So as an optic, here's what I want you to capture, what Paul wants you to get, because this is going to be important around spiritual things and spiritual gifts. The believer has to be very much aware that his theology comprehends the sovereignty of God in the work of his identity and his calling. That is to say, the believer does not frame his um, presentation of what it means to be saved as if he were a free man before he was saved and simply just changed teams. The believer does not frame his theology as if he were a free man and had the right to stay in the kingdom of darkness and then had the right to come into the kingdom of God. What the apostle is letting us know, no, you were actually a slave of the idolatrous system and no slave can extricate themselves of their own volition or else they wouldn't be slaves. 
They'd merely be hirelings, right? So Ephesians 2, just to help you with your theology, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4 puts it this way. And it's important to grasp. Here's what it says. Ephesians 2, verse 1. 2, verse 1. 2, verse 1 through 4. And you who were, who he had quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. That was our condition before being saved. You agree? All right. So without engaging in cognitive dissonance, when a person is dead, that means they're powerless. Would you agree with that? When a person is dead, that means they are senseless. When a person is dead, that means they have no awareness. All of the physical uh, apparatuses that constitutes life are absent when you're dead. And if you're dead, that means you can't bring yourself back to life. That means if you are ever coming back to life, somebody outside of you, greater than you, with the capacity to give you life, must give you life. And that's what God did for you and I. So when one, a person is truly born again, you are like a brand new baby. Isn't that what the scripture says? And a baby does not bring themselves into existence. And the system of awareness that you have as a biological faculty is that you start breathing when you are alive. Even in the womb, you are breathing. Now, biblically, breathing is what is called faith in God. To have faith is to be breathing. It's important for you to know that because the evidence of a believer's having spiritual life is that he believes. Okay. And your eyes are opened. So no longer are they closed and your ears are open. So no longer are they deaf and your heart is beating as a child of God. So no longer are you indifferent and don't care about the things of God. That makes sense, right? So when you're a newborn babe in Christ, you are hungering and desiring a fuller reality of your connection with that God who has brought you into existence. Very important for you to know that. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Verse two. Where in time past you walked according to the course of what? Right. You walked because you were led. You walked because you were led. You were following some power. Right. You were being controlled by a system. You walk because you were led according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who was that? Satan. Right. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of what? Right. So we were children of disobedience, were we not? Look at the next verse. Verse three, among whom also we all had our conversation. That word means lifestyle. It does not mean what you say. It's true that what you say is an evidence of who you are if you're not being hypocritical. Right. Because you can tell people by what comes out of their mouth at length, because out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth eventually speak, we'll know whether or not people really take God serious or not. Right. Um, so this is what Paul is saying. We were before we were saved. And notice what he says. In time past, we were operating out of a conversation, our desire, our lifestyle that was rooted in the lust of our what? Now, I want you to see the contradistinction here, because in category A, before category before Christ, we were carried away and we were led and we were following according to the lust of our flesh. That was the center of impulse. That was the grounding of our desires, the lust of our flesh. Now, the contradistinction is the lust of the spirit. See, because on this side of the equation, when you're born again, now you are compelled by spiritual things. 
So this is what we will work through as well, that what Paul is going to be talking about is what is that spiritual thing, that spiritual reality that governs us as the people of God. You walked according to the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of what? So he said that we were not only children of wrath, but the previous verse is children of disobedience. Did that make some sense? All right. So wrath is the consequence of disobedience. Disobedience is a consequence of refusing to hear. So the word disobedience there is what what we call in the Greek a negative prefixation on the term hearing. It means to be a child that does not hear. So children that do not hear are called children of what? Disobedience. And therefore, disobedient children end up under wrath. Right. So, you know, long ago, before they put you in the jail for <laughs> disciplining your children, when they wouldn't hear, we would call them disobedient. If they persisted in it, they were disciplined. Is that true? Yes. That is a paradigm of the gospel, is it not? All whom the Lord loves, he what? That's exactly right. So you and I were under the wrath of God before this grace came. And then here's verse four to bring a coupling to it. But God, you see it. That's the contrasting proposition. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us. Verse five, rescued us. Even when we were dead in sins, he has quickened us together with who? By grace, you are saved. So when we understand verses one through five, what we understand is slavery in the former system was a power that dominated us and we wanted it. Not only was it carrying us, controlling us, but it was leading us and we were following it. Now, as a child of God, we are called to lust after spiritual things. Here's one final verse in that note, Romans chapter eight, verse 14. I've told you this before, and then I'm going to use my master as a model before we move on to the next thing. Notice what it says, for as many as are what? For as many as are what? Right. People who follow the spirit. Now, you and I are carried by the grace of God into the kingdom. Now we are following the Lord Jesus by his spirit. That makes sense, right? For as many as are led by the spirit of God, they are evidencing that they are sons of God. So this is a topic of spiritual things. Go back to our verse. I want to show you something now. The reason I kind of laid this foundation is to show you what Paul is about to say now. He says over in verse one, uh, verse two, Know ye not that you were Gentiles carried away by these what? Dumb idols. Now, what he was saying is that you and I were operating under the power of propaganda and ideologies that were not true. They were systems of ideas that were rooted in pagan notions about gods that didn't really exist. And the same is true today. So it doesn't matter. You can you can you can put in the blank any kind of God you want. There's only one true and living God. That's Psalm 115, Psalm 135. Look at it briefly. Psalm 115, verse one. I just want you to capture it. All other gods are what? Idols. You must know that. And then we can actually work around the dimensions of idolatry there if we wanted to, because I don't want you thinking. Um, I don't want you to think too narrowly. I want you to comprehend deeply the biblical expose of idolatry. What Paul will teach you is that if you and I are carried and led by dumb idols, it does not mean that they are powerless. 
or else that would be a contradiction. If the dumb idols could carry you, control you, and you follow them, they must have a level of power, don't they? So this is something for you to get. Now, God knows why they're dumb, but you and I need to understand that dumb does not mean that there is not a dynamic behind that idolatrous presentation that doesn't have the capacity to bring you under its control. Everything has a phenotypical expression. So like you and I are, you and I have a, an image, that's the idea of an idol, a visual of something, right? All pagan gods have visuals and people are compelled by those visuals and people are compelled by idolatrous visuals today. Are y'all with me? Right. You, you, you look online, you look anywhere, visuals everywhere, idols are everywhere, are they not? They are ubiquitous. They are everywhere. Now, those are phenotypical expressions of a kind of idol, particular idol, but behind that idol is a power. Otherwise, it would have no pull. It would have no draw. It would have no capacity for you to completely absorb yourself into it, to, to actually identify with it, and then laud it, celebrate it, and then promote it, even with your life, which is what the world does. So it's important for you not to not think too shallowly about the little icons and idols and pictures and wood uh, products or metal products, because this thing can can be very elaborate when we go deep enough. Is that not right? Very elaborate, profoundly complex and massively sophisticated and uh, and fiercely demonically controlled. So it's important for you to know that you were led about by these things is extremely important. Now, notice what Paul says. I want you to capture this. He says, if you've got verse two, then you might be ready for verse three. And here's what verse three says. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the spirit of God calleth Jesus what? All right. So this is really important. So under point number one, the way I opened it up is sub point A, demonic influences of idolatry, the demonic influences of idolatry. Did, did that make some sense? In fact, a quotation there is Galatians four, verse eight. Paul picks up the same subject with them. And here's what he says. Now that we've kind of cultivated a little bit of thought around this. Here's what he says. He says, how be it then when you did not what? See what I meant? That's what it means to be a Gentile, not know God. When you didn't know God, you did service. Do you see that? You did service. What does that mean? We were led by as slaves to do service. The scriptures are very explicit here, is it not? You did service. Watch this. Unto them, which by nature, ontologically, are what? No gods. But there was some kind of power behind it driving it because you were led by it. You are following its dictates, its proposition, its theses, its hypotheses, its plans, its promises, its purposes. You were following it. We were, were we not? A whole system. So I love what Paul is saying here. We're going to leave that one alone. Um, and, and then sub point B, we carried, carried and led. This is the language that we saw in first, uh, first Kings. But the way Paul puts it is in second Timothy chapter two, I believe, verse 24 through 26. And I just want you to see one more verse so we can nail this down. And then we're going to cross over. We got enough time for me to unpack what he says in verse three. He says in second Timothy, uh, two 24. And this is important for all of us to know. So everything I've talked about for the last 20, 20 minutes, is important for us to know uh, from the standpoint, particularly of uh, sharing the gospel or witnessing or, or, or bearing testimony to the reality of God to other people. 
This is important to know. What we're about to talk about is important. Like if we really agree that there is a dark kingdom and a kingdom of light, real, visceral, eternal, substantial, damning and blessing kingdoms. If there is the two kingdoms, if they really exist and people really are slaves of that other kingdom, if they're controlled and if they're led by and therefore following that system and they are they are unable of themselves to even recognize ultimately that they're following that system. The ethic that is derived from verse 24 is a non-negotiable for you and me. Like you have no right to act any other kind of way with people if you recognize what we've talked about up to this point. Because it would be like you trying to tell people to do something that they could not possibly do on their own. Am I making some sense? All right, so listen to what he said. And so the servant of the Lord, that's you and me, that would put you and me on this other side because you and I were carried away by the Spirit of God. And now according to Romans 8, 14, we're led by him, are we not? As many as are led by him, they're called the what of God? Sons of God, but sons of God are also what? Servants. There's no doubt about that. So those parallels are critical. So now imagine you and I, on the other side, according to Colossians chapter one, translated into the kingdom of his dear son, liberated from that other kingdom, aware that we were a part of that other kingdom, glad to not be of it, but also now obligated to help other people come out. Are we? Our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our brothers and sisters, in some cases, our husbands and our wives. See, I, I want you to always put a face on it or else you will you will mess your theology up. See what I'm getting at? We don't have the luxury of being indifferent. These are family members. So if God pulls us out of the pit and says, oh, you got children still in the pit. Will we not want to go back in the pit to get our kids? But you have to have an ethic when you go in. So I'm going to be talking about that when we come back on Friday, because we are dealing with what kind of things? All right, see, I can tell you a whole lot here because when we're talking about spiritual things, we're talking about or issues of origin. We're talking about issues of morality. We're talking about issues of ethics. That's what we're talking about. Ethics, ethics. I think I got it right. Yep, and ethics are, morality is why we do what we do. Ethics is how we do what we do. Origin is who we do it for. Does that make sense? Like we do it for God and what will proceed from a spiritual connection with God, a spiritual relationship is a moral system of governance. That's going to proceed from God. It's going to have an ethical system of behavior. So like when we are spiritually connected, there's no such thing as being truly spiritual and being immoral. There's no such thing as being truly spiritual and being unethical. See, the, the, the people in this system are immoral and they are unethical. The dark system is. Am I making some sense? And then I'll share with you when we get into the gifts why the ultimate goal of being connected to God is that we might be able to present in our own lives a moral ethical framework of existence that underscores what it means to be born again. Am I making some sense? So if we go... Originating from God is a system of morals and ethics by which it allows us to express who we really are as sons and daughters of God. 
i.e. righteousness. Don't ever forget that. Righteousness is the end game for God's glory. So when you're not right with God, you're outside of God. When you're inside of God on the grounds of who Christ is and you in Christ and Christ in you, you're right with God. Righteousness is axiomatic to the people of God. Did that come home? So when I put out the idea of morals and ethics, what I'm talking about are the fruits of righteousness. Right. That's going to be the unarguable evidence that you are truly a child of God. That being carried into the new kingdom and being led by the spirit of God, you are going to function in choice making that is going to be predominantly moral in its framework, according to the word of God. And you're going to act out ethically according to the word of God. It's going to be uh, obvious that that's the case. That's first John. I won't build that out. But listen to what he says. And the servant of the Lord must not what? Right. Because what good is striving with a dead person? What good is arguing with a blind person? A blind person can't see nothing. And you say, go that way. Go that way. Go what way? Go that way. Well, what good is telling them to go that way if they are blind? And it becomes even worse if they are blind and deaf. It's dumb. Does that make some sense? So if we understand the dimensions of contradiction in the context of talking to someone who is really still spiritually blind, what we will know is a kind of underlying patience is called on our part because we actually need more than the human apparatus that we have for there to be a substantial outcome and change in their life. That's what we're about to get into. If I'm going to help a dead person, a blind person, a deaf person, a lame person, I must know that all I am is a vehicle. That's why we're getting into spiritual things. I cannot assume that I can just use my own techniques, my own methodology, my own skill sets. I don't have the capacity to penetrate in the field of need that that person has to actually bring them into the light. I don't have it. So if I am not submitting to and being led by the spirit of God in the way in which we're going to unpack it over the next several days, then I am a feudal servant of the Lord. If I am a servant at all. Right. Because what Romans 8, 14 is saying is if you are not led by the spirit of God, you're none of his. That's like literally what it's saying. You can read it for yourself. OK. And you can come back and do the Q&A with me. And it, and it only makes sense because. The only people that can facilitate the miraculous uh, recovery of lost people are people who are truly saved. All right. So let's let's work through uh, this second conundrum of a proposition that I think is going to be important to the cause. And it will be. And we'll come back and unpack um, point number three um, on Friday. Well, we will begin because we have a lot of weeks to go through all of these categories. Look at verse three. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the what? Speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. Do you see it? And that no man can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the what? Holy all right. So I want you to come back to our example of before and after. Y'all got that? Before we were saved, <clears throat> we were carried away. And we were led following being controlled by dumb idols. Would you agree with that? Yes. <clears throat> that being the case, the before factor makes it logical 
that I would and I could and maybe I did call Jesus accursed. This precondition before my salvation put me in the place of calling Jesus accursed. I want you to capture that. This is true. Everyone that is operating out of having been carried away by dumb idols and being led by them naturally calls Jesus accursed. You can't help that because the premise upon which you stand is unbelief. Does that follow? Uh, conversely, after being called by the grace of God, and you'll notice that I did this in a shape that basically reminds us of what? The cross. It's important. After coming into Christ and being carried away from the dark kingdom into the kingdom of light and being led by the spirit of God, it is not possible for you to curse Christ. Did that follow? It's not possible for you to call him accursed because the subject that we're dealing with now is not mere propositional exercises. It's not the mere expression of a term. When Paul says here, I want you to know that no man speaking by the spirit of God can call Jesus accursed. What he's saying is, a person that's led, a person that's guided, a person that's controlled by the Spirit of God knows that Jesus is no longer accursed. This is what he knows. He knows that Jesus was accursed for us when he hung on the tree, Galatians 3.13, which plainly states Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. We know that he was accursed, but we also know that that curse passed because he was taken down off that cross, put into a grave, and the third day rose again with all power in his hand. He ascended on high and took his seat at the right hand of God, being the very righteousness of God. No way can a person who knows God in his grace ever say Jesus is accursed. Does that make some sense? I wanted you to get that optic right away and I'm getting ready to build out the argument. Um, and therefore, notice what it says, that no man can say that Jesus is what? All right, so those are the, and, and I'm, I'm going to finish this statement in a moment. Those are the two sides of the same coin. Jesus is cursed. Or Jesus is what? Jesus is cursed or Jesus is what? It's important for you to get that. Right. See, so what 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 Jesus demonstrated when he walked this earth for uh, 30 plus years and particularly for three and a half years, what he demonstrated as Messiah was that he was the one that come would come to take away our sins. And so for three and a half years in the Gospels, guess what he was doing? He was doing New Testament miracles, proving that he himself was not a sinner. Right, because remember, if he were a sinner, God would not hear him. If he were a sinner, he couldn't do the things that he did not tell you that if for me, because I'm simultaneously sinful and righteous, I'm not opening nobody's eyes. I'm not opening anybody's ears. I'm not raising nobody from the dead. 
I'm not healing anybody of any of their paralysis because I am not the Messiah. But if I were the Messiah, I don't have to be because he came. I would be able to prove that I am righteous because I would be able to open the eyes of the blind. I would be able to hear, heal the deaf. I would be able to heal the leper because the power of God Almighty would be working in me like he did in Jesus to do it. Jesus proved by every remarkable miracle that he performed that he was the very righteousness of God. He also was proving as a foreshadow that his death on the cross would only be temporary. Did that make some sense? It's important for you to get here because what's going on throughout all of human history is really this. Who is Jesus? Remember what Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 19. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Do you guys remember that? And what Jesus did right there was establish what we would call the infallible confession of the church. The infallible confession of the church. And what we're dealing with here in First uh, Corinthians 12, uh, 3 is confession. It's confession. In other words, if you're not saved, you cannot confess Jesus as Lord. Am I making some sense? Right, because he's not Lord. The only person that can confess him Lord are those that know him as Lord. It'll come home in a second. Please understand what's taking place here. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. He says, if you confess me before men. I will confess you before my father, which is in heaven. Is that what he said? Now, he wasn't mean just go around telling people you believe in Jesus. He meant, do you have the capacity to stand before judicial systems with your life at threat of death and say that Jesus is Lord? Am I making sense now? Do you have the capacity to own Jesus as your Redeemer, your Savior, and Lord, so that when the system comes to you and says, curse Jesus and you can live, do you have the capacity to do it? Am I making some sense? Because this is really what's going on in the text. The text is not about a gymnastics of linguistics. Devils can say Jesus is Lord. Parakeets can do it. Am I making some sense? What I'm getting at here in the language, because what Paul is about to talk about is the third person given to us as a consequence of the second person sacrificing himself for us. What Paul is about to teach us is if you have the spirit of God, you have already affirmed that Jesus is Lord. What Paul is about to explain is there's no way possible that you and I can actually enjoy and benefit from these gifts of the spirit without first being children of the living God by submission to the crown rights of Jesus Christ. Does that make some sense? That's what he's arguing here. And this is what I want to build into your thinking here. And then you can raise this as a question if you want to, but look under point number two, there are three sub points that really kind of touch on this. The cross of Christ is comprehended by every true believer. Would you agree with that? By every true believer, here's what we understand about the cross of Christ, that Christ died for our sins as a substitute. Amen. That he died 
and was buried and what? Rose again the third day. Is that what we comprehend? That means he's no longer on the cross. Would you agree? That means he's no longer bearing the curse of sin. Would you agree? And if he rose again from the dead, that means that God had justified him and justified us through him. Would you agree with that? Right. So the doctrine of the cross is that Christ did bear the curse in our behalf, but that curse was taken away in him. And when he rose again from the dead, he rose again in the perfect total righteousness of the mediator. In fact, the only mediator of the world between God and man. So that God looks to Christ as a grounds of perfect righteousness, not a cursed thing. That was a past reality. That was a past reality. And it stands as a symbol, the cross stands as a symbol, for anyone before the cross to come to the cross to get to the other side of the cross and enjoy the crown rights of Jesus Christ. So this is an important theology for you to capture. As much as you must know what the cross means, you must also know that Jesus is no longer on it. That's the whole message of the book of Acts. He is no longer dead. He is risen and he is Lord. That's the message, is it not? You with wicked hands have crucified and slain the Lord of glory, but God has made him both Lord and Christ. And that is what caused the people in Jerusalem to tremble when they heard that Jesus was Lord. Now, this is apostolic doctrine. So when I say that Paul is teaching no one who actually believes this message goes around calling Jesus what? Because what it would be doing is undoing what he did on the cross. Did that make some sense? If we say he's a curse, we're saying that he hung on the cross. Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried, but he wasn't risen again. And he didn't ascend on high. We would say that he's a curse. And in doing so, we would call him not our Lord, but just another human being that died on the cross like a victim of Rome. And there were thousands of them that died all the time. Am I making some sense? I'm, I'm helping you understand. This is about how you comprehend what happened 2000 years ago and how it makes implication in your life and mine today. How important is it for you and I to know that Jesus rose again from the dead, right? How important is it for you and I to know? Again, so the cross of Christ is comprehended. That's Galatians 3.13. You guys probably need to set your eyes on it. Let's do it briefly, but we should know it by heart. Listen to what Paul says as he explains it. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Has he not? Right. Okay. So you saw me over here talk about what it means to be carried away and what it means to be led, right? Carried away over here means to be redeemed, doesn't it? Redeemed is what God did when he brought Israel out of Egypt. Redeemed is what God did when he paid for our sin and let us out of the prison of hell and death, right? So under that redemption, we are carried away into a new kingdom and now we're led by another, even the spirit of Christ. Would you agree with that? Right. So it's important for you and I to know Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. Watch this. For it is written, cursed is every man that what? Did he hang on the tree? Did he stay on that tree? Which means he was cursed and he is cursed no more. We do not call him cursed. I'm getting ready to show you who does. And it's important for you to know. Our Hebrews, uh, the next subpoint in, uh, in category B is the triumph of Christ is what? Confessed. The, the cross of Christ is comprehended, but the triumph of Christ is what? 
confess. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 through 36. This is the New Testament theology. This is important to get. This is why Paul is doing what he's doing in 1 Corinthians 12. Before we talk about spiritual gifts, we got to be clear on the one gift that God gave us, and that's the person of Christ. There's no talking about spiritual gifts if you don't know who he is, what he did, why he did it, and where he is now. What good is talking about all these little gifts if, if you aren't sure that Jesus has risen again and seated on the right hand of God and sure enough to die for it? Am I making sense? All right, so it's important for you. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. Is Jesus exalted? And having received of the Father the promise of the what? And that's, that's what we're talking about, spiritual things, are we not? Because we're getting ready to get into the direct operations of the third person. That's what we're getting ready to get into. But that wouldn't happen if God did not highly exalt him. Having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed on, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. This is going to play into the equation of the history of gift outpouring. Y'all, y'all do know that. Look at the next verse. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he said, the Lord said unto my Lord, do what? Sit down. Is that not a radical Psalm? Psalm 110 verse 1 and 2 laying out the crown rights of Jesus. Right. Notice what it says in verse 35. Until I make thy foes thy footstool. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have what? Whom you have what? Whom you had cursed. Whom you had cursed. They decreed him cursed. For them, he blasphemed God. Hang him on a tree. Y'all keeping up with me now? You see how your theology has to be anchored to the word of God? It cannot float in the sky. To call Jesus a curse is to reject him as Messiah. Keeping up with me? And we know who did that, right? The Jewish people, right? Right, this is the whole book of Acts. And it's Jewish people letting Jewish people know, hey, you rejected Messiah, but God raised him from the dead. We believe that he is what? Lord. See it? You have crucified both Lord and Christ. That's the message. That's the message. Now, it's interesting. The people that know him after the cross are talking to the people who are before the cross. Is that true? The Jewish people who are believers after the crucifixion of Christ are talking to uh, Jewish people who are not believers because they don't see him having risen from the dead. They see him still accursed. They see him in the grave. Would you agree with that? All right, this is so, so important. So I got a couple more things to drill down into you on that. And many of you who have been with me for a long time, you already know this. This is exactly what the Hebrew writer is arguing for in the whole book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 explains this. Listen to it. And I'm really wanting to get to verse 1 and 2. Hebrews 6. Um, yeah, you can, uh, you can, you can start. Yeah, well, let's start here. Verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles, the fundamentals of the doctrine of who? Christ, the message of Christ. Let us go on to what? Maturity. And that's what believers are called to. Maturity in Christ. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of what? Faith towards God. Which one would do when one is confronted with the claims of the crucified Christ? 
You would come to a knowledge of your sin. You would come to an understanding that your sin merits death. You would recognize that Christ died on that cross. It would bring about repentance in your heart. It would produce faith in God because you see that God has solved your sin problem in the person of Jesus. Did that make some sense? Right. I love this. Now look at verse two of the doctrine of baptism. What happens after we believe on Jesus as Lord? We get baptized, do we not? So we hear the message. We believe in the death, burial and resurrection. We call him Lord. He says, if you're Lord, then follow me and get in the what? Did he get in the water? Then we get in the water. Did he come out the water? Then we come out the water. Right. Did he walk with God? Then we walk with God. Was he led by the spirit? You see where we're going? You guys see where we're going? We're going the same way our Lord is going. Because Paul caught it. Paul caught, he caught the formula. He caught the formula that God sent his son and sending his son, he brought to us the revelation. And those of us who are his are carried by that revelation and we are led by that revelation to be as Jesus was in the world. As he was in the world, so are we. Coming home now, isn't it? These are fundamentals. Watch this, verse three. Verse three. And this we will do if God permits. Verse four. Now watch this. The same person writing in first Corinthians chapter 12 is understanding this same theology that I'm talking to you about now. Here's what he says. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Verse five. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. All of these are parts of the dynamics of the gifts. Y'all follow that? Watch this. Verse, verse seven. Six, rather. If they show what? To fall away means they no longer believe that Jesus is Lord. That's what fall away has to mean, right? No longer believe that Jesus is Lord. Like at some point they said he's Lord and then later they abandoned it, didn't they? Right. Do we know that that happened in the first century? The book of Hebrews tells us many Jews went away from him. John's gospel, chapter six, gave us the pinnacle of that. Jesus said they followed me for a year and a half, almost two years. And then when I came out and told them, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Many fell away when he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. He was asserting that life is only found in him. Right. He says, when I give my flesh for the life of the world, he was talking about his crucifixion, was he not? So to believe on Jesus is to feed on him as if he were our very life. That means we believe him to be our substitute. We believe him to be our savior, our surety. We believe him to have assumed the human nature, died on the cross, was buried, raised again, and ascended on high, is alive forevermore. We believe that, right? And so that's, that is the essence of the confession. And if I were to turn around and go, no, Jesus is a curse. It would mean I would undo everything that God did and God said that he did in raising his son from the dead. Are y'all ready? It would look like this. I would be saying, Father, take him down off your throne. Bring him back down to the earth. Put him back in the grave and leave him in the grave because Jesus is accursed. You hear what I'm getting at? But do you understand the theology that I'm setting for but now who would say that? Who would say, yeah, we believe he came. Yeah, we believe he lived. Yeah, we believe he was crucified. Yeah, we believe that he died. But we do not believe that he rose again. Who would say that? 
The Jews. Are you reading your Bible? Matthew chapter 20, 28. Here it is. The last one. I'm going to show it to you. Now stay here. Go stay here for a second. Notice what it says. We'll get we'll finish up here. If they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance is impossible. This is what is called an elliptical statement, because the first part of the verse go back to verse four. Listen to verse four, because this parenthesis is it is impossible. You see that phrase? It is impossible. Now go to verse six. It is impossible if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Did you get that? And here's the reason why you can't reverse what happened by Christ's death, burial, resurrection and ascension. If somehow we could believe in his death, burial, resurrection and ascension and then not believe it would be altogether like he has to go back into the grave. He has to go back to the cross. He has to go back before the cross. He has to go back to his birth. He has to go back into eternity. And if I'm going to be saved, he has to come, assume another human nature, live a perfect life again, die a perfect death, have a perfect burial, and have a perfect resurrection if I am to be saved again. That's not going to happen. Therefore, restoration is impossible. Did that make some sense? The Hebrew writer is saying, if you say you have all of these gifts operating in your life, which is a consequence of the third person, and then one day you say, no, 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 Jesus is not Lord, he's cursed. It's impossible for you to be renewed unto repentance because the renewal unto repentance is inexorably tied to the once for all death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's not dying over and over and over and over and over again. Did y'all get that? It's important for you to capture that. And, and if I were a Hebrew, I would want to be told, hey, don't play this game of calling Jesus accursed. Because if you have just called him Lord, you're saying his work was finished. And if somehow you could undo his lordship and make him accursed again, well, you have just abandoned any hope of salvation. Is that right? That's the language that's being put there. I want you to grind. I want you to work with the notice what it says. Seeing they crucify to themselves the what? The well, who crucified the son of God? The Jews. Who is the writer to the Hebrew talking to? The Jews. What is he talking to them about? What they did and the benefits that came to them. But only if Jesus rose again from the dead. If you're telling us now you believe that he rose from the dead, but now no longer do you believe that he rose from the dead, you're going back to works religion. You are about to return to the temple. You're about to put more hope in sacrifices and offerings and bullocks and circumcision and, and ceremonies than you are the reality that came in Jesus. Am I making some sense to you guys? Everybody may not be getting it, but it's important for you to get it's important for you to get one more passage of scripture that underscores it. He says, you have uh, you have uh, crucified to yourselves the son of God again. See that little word afresh? It means again. They did it one time already. He says, you're doing it again. You, If there's a whole bunch of Hebrew people that said they believe as Jesus is Messiah, and then under the pressure of those pre-cross Jews, they abandoned Jesus, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying, you guys are getting ready to crucify him again. You're getting ready to call him accursed again. Did that make some sense? Again, listen, he's not going to rise again from the dead. He only did it one time. And then you're going to put him to an open what? 
I think there's a verse 7 behind that. Ah, I leave that alone. That's an analogy. I know what Paul is doing. He's warning about what we call apostasy. Where you, you know, you profess to believe that he's Lord. And then when the pressure and trials come, you abandon him as Lord. And you go back to Judaism. If you go back to Judaism, you're calling Jesus what? Accursed. Did y'all did catch that? You, did you catch it? Oh, may God open your eyes. You're calling him a curse because cursed is everyone that what? Hangs on a tree. Matthew 28. I'll, I'll seal it right here and then I'll let you go. I want you to get it. Because see, what I'm doing is saying to you right now, as we get ready to go into the gifts of the spirit, if we don't know this, we won't understand why people are skating on all kinds of crazy ice around the Holy Spirit and gifts. The thing that regulates the gifts is a right relationship with Jesus. You have to know that. Without Jesus, you're all over the map. When we go to talking about the gifts, we're going to be talking about people engaging in crazy things that have no basis in reality whatsoever. Then we're going to be talking about people who really do know the power of God at a dynamic level because they are regulated by a grounded relationship with the master. Am I making some sense? One more, one more, one more passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. So the writer to the Hebrews, that's what he wants you and I to comprehend. He says in Hebrews 26, for if we sin willfully, what does that mean? Presumptuously. That's what I taught you. After that, we have received the what? The knowledge well, what is the knowledge of the truth? Christ died. He was buried and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Right. So if we reject that proposition, we're willfully saying we do not accept God's once for all sacrifice for sin. That makes sense, right? Here it is. For if we willfully sin after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more what? Ah, not only have we cursed Christ, we've cursed ourselves. Because there's no other sacrifice. If I take away the only sacrifice for sin by saying Jesus is still hanging on the cross, he did not finish the work. He did not accomplish eternal redemption. He did not rise from the dead with all power in his hand. He is not the resurrection and the life. He is not the true and the living God in, in a represented in a human nature. I am basically taking everybody's hope away. Am I not cursing everyone? I'm cursing Christ, I'm cursing myself, I'm cursing my family, I'm cursing everybody. All right, you guys, that's it. We'll, we'll pick it up on Friday. Now, I'll say this as y'all leave. The Holy Ghost is not going to let you curse Jesus. <laughs> if anybody loves Jesus, it's the Holy Ghost. All right, we'll, be, we'll, catch, we'll take this up Friday.